Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly look at the world of evidence from BMJ's editors. I'm Helen McDonald, Content Integrity and Publication Ethics Editor at BMJ, and I'm joined on the podcast by Juan Franco, Editor-in-Chief of BMJ EBM, Evidence-Based Medicine, GP and Systematic Review Fanatic. Hi, Helen. Hi, Joe. We're also joined by Joe Ross, the BMJ's US Research Editor, General Internist and Big Data Fan. Hey, everybody. Nice to see you. This week, we've got lots on the menu, and we're talking about pay for performance measures. Um, a research paper from Scotland tracked what happened when some quality outcome framework indicators, or QOF as it was known for GPs, were stopped. We'll talk about generating data for research and quality improvement in primary care. We've got a special interview with Hussein Naji from the London School of Economics about the UK government's new plans for dr- drug regulation after Brexit. We'll touch on the US spend on mRNA vaccines. And finally, Juan is going to shed some light on how good or not point-of-care medical apps are for doctors. Let's get started with Quaff, the pay for performance measures. And Joe, you're going to tell us a bit about this paper. And I had no idea it was called Quaff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is. It's much easier to say than pay for performance measures, which I keep tripping over. <laughs> it's so funny because um, in the United States, what we would say is P for P has been yeah. around for decades upon decades as a way to improve quality. Because, right, in the you know the idea being like if we're gonna find ways to improve quality and performance, what's the surest way to do it? But let's pay for it, and so. This idea of trying to get uh, physicians and hospitals to provide the most appropriate, highest quality care using financial incentives, you know, has been around for a long time. But we saw an explosion in these types of programs, uh, not just in Quaff, you know, throughout the UK, but also, you know, throughout the Medicare program in the United States and other countries throughout the world. As we all became aware of the problem of kind of providing low quality or low value care. Um, and this being kind of the sort of front and center kind of easiest solution. What I liked about this paper, uh, which came from a great group in Scotland, is they kind of they asked the question of, well, you know, there's been kind of marginal studies that suggest when you quote unquote pay for performance, you get better performance. But there's always been a lot of skepticism about at that does it actually improve outcomes for patients or does that make physicians and clinicians just do a better job of ticking the box saying that they provided mental health screening or tobacco cessation counseling, but the actual you know, effectiveness of those interventions is questionable because they're just kind of ticking boxes. And there are some measures that are looking at actual kind of intermediate related outcomes like someone's hemoglobin A1C measure or their blood pressure um, and, and so on and so forth. But what was interesting about this paper is it's evaluated essentially what was a natural experiment where the QOF program had grown to such a size across the UK that Scotland essentially decided to abandon it, uh, I believe in around 2016 or so, but they continued to collect the data. So they have this interesting kind of before-after comparison looking at the the measured performance in Scotland and in England, both before and after only Scotland stopped providing the financial incentives. And I think what they find is kind of, uh, 
illuminating in terms of like what the program was doing. They, they have 16 different measures of care, these sort of performance indicators that were routinely being measured. These are things like, did you provide mental health care planning and diabetic foot screening for patients with diabetes? Do you, uh, you know, are people's blood pressure controlled if they have hypertension or diabetes or have had a stroke or peripheral arterial disease? Uh, was the hemoglobin A1C controlled among patients with diabetes? And uh, were patients uh, with these certain comorbid conditions like diabetes and COPD and heart disease, did they get their influenza immunization? And for patients with heart disease, did they get their uh, oral anticoagulation? And, and they looked pre-post, uh, you know, kind of to over time comparing to England. And they, there's some really interesting figures uh, in the uh, manuscript where you can see how essentially performance drops, right? They stop clicking the tick box for sure um, for mental health care planning. It drops from like 60 some odd percent down to below 40 percent. It drops a little bit less for diabetic foot screening. The blood pressure control as having blood pressure less than 150 over 90 for many of these patients all declines a little bit, maybe like five to 10 percentage points, which to me raises the question of, did people actually have worse blood pressure control? Or was this sort of gaming of the measures eliminated now that they were no longer being paid for it? Um, and you see other things, uh, you know, you sort of, uh, you don't actually see as much of a drop in terms of uh, the treatment, the court, like the getting the, the influenza vaccine and getting the antiplatelet or anticoagulant. Those basically stay about the same. So very intriguing. I think the most important thing is now going to be a couple of years later, you know, our patients uh, are their outcomes actually worse or was this just evidence of gamesmanship? But it raises a whole host of questions of, you know, if we're going to try to improve quality of care for patients and paying extra for it doesn't work, what's the best way to do it? Mm. Wow, what were your thoughts? Well, um, yeah, I was initially struck by the the, um, the choice, choice of indicators. Um, some of the... Um, Indicators were very complex and required a lot of recording, and some of them also related to some outcomes um, for which we have been changing our minds on how to think about it. For example, in diabetes care, people who are taking um, drugs to reduce their glucose levels, they might want to achieve a target of HbA1c and that target needs to be customized to their own preferences and needs and comorbidities. And some of these indicators, I thought that they were um, in the light of, of, of 2023, I guess, that uh, they, they seemed a little bit uh, less patient cared, pa patient centered. Um, and uh, this sort of relates to this concept that Victor Montori says about industrialized care and uh, how we're all sort of playing by the system. And as Joe mentioned, uh, the distortions that might lead to gaming of the system and some of the concerns about whether we're sort of playing a game rather than improving care. Having said that, I'm less pessimistic about the withdrawal of incentives because I'm not entirely sure if you're a physician and you've been working for these indicators for a long time and you've been caring for patients and sort of gotten used to working in a certain way, um, if you're withdrawn from these incentives, are you going to do less for your patients or perhaps are you going to record less 
of what you do because you you've taken this uh, incentive to tick all the boxes so you look good so and and at the end these patients might have uh, a, a similar quality of care but we're not just saying that Having said that, there's a there's an interesting analysis piece that was published at the BMJ recently that talked about the um, electronic health um, records um, and how the quality of data could be improved. And they highlighted this problem that the way we record data in our systems for research and for quality of care may not be fully aligned um, with uh, with improving patient outcomes. And in this analysis piece, uh, perhaps you can link in, in the episode, um, they mentioned some innovative solutions, for example, natural language processing, AI, or outsourcing of data. So perhaps in the future... If what do they mean by that, Juan? That those are used during consultations to to fill in oh, that's, uh, sort of structured data? Or how, how, how do they envisage them being used? Well, the... the um, Basically, in the electronic healthcare record, you have structured data and unstructured data, right? So yeah. structured data, uh, structured data is the tick box uh, sort of thing, and the unstructured data are the notes, right? Yeah. So, um, so the incentives work very well when you're ticking boxes, but a lot of the work we do sometimes is reflected in the notes, which might underrepresent what physicians actually do. So if we actually can capture what physicians do from the notes using na- uh, advanced tools on how to read those notes with, with um, machines, <laughs> and uh, perhaps we can capture those um, actions from physicians that otherwise would have been missed. Oh, so it's about how you turn the free text notes into more structured data. Yes. Using those tools. Yes. Interesting. And they also mentioned outsourcing, but I'm guessing Joe will probably have more idea on outsourcing because the example comes from the US of hiring people to go around the doctors and, and, and annotating what they do, um, which I acknowledge that it leads to another kind of criticisms, but... Um, yeah, that, that, that's it. Uh, that's like hiring a medical scribe who essentially follows the clinician around, better documenting so that there's quote-unquote better data um, there must be another way besides adding one more <laughs> kind of human to the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess the, but it I was interesting that yeah. sorry it was interesting that piece the way they talked um about this concept of a learning health system which i think was interesting and they referenced um that to being in the u.s and the idea i think being that the clinicians that are working there are seeing um I guess a much closer relationship between research, quality improvement and their clinical care record and how that information can be used simultaneously for all of those things. And they did have some some examples in that, Joe, from the US. Do you know much about those? I think we've come a long way with understanding quality and performance in healthcare. You know, whereas 20 years ago, we were really at our infancy, recognizing you know, that we need to find ways to measure quality. There are certain evidence-based processes that should be followed for, you know, broad, you know, ranges of conditions. But now I think we're, we're at the point where we're sort of at the avant-garde, like Juan is right. We need to better think about how data can be used to assess in a more nuanced way, kind of what we're doing for patients. 
I think the key is less about like, you know, should we be modern to make sure there's checking of a box that everybody gets to tobacco cessation or mental health planning or whatever it is, knowing that those types of interventions are easy to tick, but, you know, kind of probably low impact because they're sort of quickly sussed over in the course of a visit. But instead, um, you know, can we use data to identify patients who I like to think of as like falling through the cracks, people who are completely missing from the system, like whether their blood pressure is, you know, 148 over 88 versus 152 over 92 is less important than identifying the people who are completely untreated, have known hypertension, they've been diagnosed with it, and they're, they're not coming back for care for whatever other reason. Maybe it's, you know, the burden of care, maybe they're taking care of another individual, maybe they can't afford to take the day off from work, right? These are the people that we need to reach as a health system if we're going to improve population health. Indeed, and there was a nice editorial that, going back to your research paper that we started this discussion with, there was a nice editorial that goes with it by uh, Kath Checkland, a professor of health policy and primary care in Manchester. And that gives a nice overview, I think, of that whole quaff endeavour where, where it is sort of a bit historical, where it came from. Um, and, and she summarises um, the extensive evaluations that happened, um, concluding that the benefits um, were modest at best. There was a lot of attainment and achievement of these goals, but that the evidence suggested that the scheme, although it had narrowed some inequalities in care quality, the longer term evaluation wasn't as good um, as, as was imagined. And, and 10 years after its um, inception, um, there was a decision that, that it hadn't really been associated with the kind of improvements in mortality um, and modelling suggested that it wasn't cost effective. So things have, have kind of moved on. So, so it's in, it will be interesting to see what comes next and, and maybe something which feels much more suitable for um, 2023 and onwards, something that's much more patient-centred um, and, and focused around the priorities that people have rather than the priorities that um, were decided for them. <laughs> <laughs> by the, the administrators. powers that be. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You'll forgive me for being a little bit UK-centric on this item, but there was an announcement by Chancellor Jeremy Hunt here on the 15th of March um, about uh, drug and, well, medicines and technology regulation in the UK. And he said there was going to be near automatic sign-off for medicines and technologies already approved by trusted regulators. And this is part of um, setting out after Brexit uh, what's going to happen um, in this space. Recently, I spoke with Hussein Naji uh, to tell us a bit more. Hi, Hussein. Thank you so much for joining me. Can you just begin by introducing yourself and giving a sense um, to our listeners of why you are a man who knows stuff about this issue? Thanks, Ellen. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Hussein Naji. I'm an associate professor of health policy at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And my research is on pharmaceutical policy and regulation. And specifically, I look at the quantity and the quality of evidence that supports regulatory approvals of new medicines. Okay. So I think just for any listeners who are less familiar with the regulatory environment, just give us a swift rundown on the key players. Can you just tell us who the regulators are and then who the health technology appraisers are? Because I think that's going to put this conversation in context for them. Right. So traditionally, um, we would have 
private companies developing their products and then seeking um, an approval by a regulatory agency. And this can be uh, an organization like the U.S. Food and Drug Administration Mm -hmm. in the U.S. or the European Medicines Agency within the European Union, or in the case of the U.K., the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, the MHRA. Once products are approved by the regulatory agencies, they're then appraised by usually, not in all countries, but usually they're appraised by health technology assessment bodies. Mm -hmm. And in the UK, this is National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, that looks at not only the efficacy of the product, but also its cost effectiveness to see if it's a good value for money for the NHS. So the regulators, in effect, answer, might it work sufficiently well to have a license to to sell this thing? And the healthcare, sorry, and the health technology appraisers are saying, is it really worth it? That's exactly right. Okay. So what does this announcement change? So this announcement essentially means that the MHRA will be looking at other international regulators and it's going to be increasing its reliance on other regulatory agencies for approving new medicines. And why would it do that? So... um, much of the uh, kind of the announcement can be or the motivation for the announcement can be traced back to Brexit, mm-hmm. um, which is, of course, the, the UK's departure from the European Union a few years ago. Until Brexit, the UK was part of the European regulatory framework um, and it was working under the auspices of the European Medicines Agency. And it was really a crucial kind of member of the European Medicines Agency in that it was responsible for over 30% of drug reviews mm-hmm. done by the EMA. And it, in, in turn, it benefited from collaboration with other regulatory agencies within the European Union. And this also had a benefit for the industry in that once a product was approved by the European Medicines Agency, it could be launched in all of the EU countries mm-hmm. subsequently. Since Brexit, the MHRA has become the independent, the sole regulator for the UK market. And what that means is companies now have to seek authorization from the MHRA before they can launch their products in the UK. Now, what this means is that there's a bit of a concern from the government, mm-hmm. a very explicit concern from the government that UK being a relatively small market, it only accounts for 3 or 4% of the global pharmaceutical market, companies may not launch their products here or they may delay launching their products here. So this announcement is essentially sending a signal to companies that the UK remains an attractive, reliable market for companies to launch their products in the UK. And so what do you see as the potential benefits and harms of this announcement? So it, ha- it does have some benefits in theory. Um, anytime we have more kind of coordination or collaboration or harmonization of regulatory processes, that's in theory a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw that with COVID-19 when there was uh, a bit of a lack of a collaboration between regulatory agencies. Uh, agencies couldn't agree on efficacy thresholds for vaccines, for example. Some countries uh, approved the AstraZeneca vaccine, whereas others didn't. So we could see, you know, benefits of better collaboration. Um, so that's that's a positive um, thing about this announcement that the MHRA will work closely with other regulators. The other potential benefit of this is that the MHRA is going to get quite a bit of a funding boost over the next few years. Okay, how's that work? And uh, well, it's going to receive approximately 10 million pounds for the next two years. And that's really good because the MHRA suffered really uh, big budget cuts following Mm -hmm. Brexit. And this led to staff uh, redundancies um, and some senior 
staff members have really voiced concern over what this may mean for the ability of the organization to really deliver on its objectives. So that's that's a that's a positive. But on the flip side of this, this additional funding is contingent on speeding up the approval processes for the MHRA. Okay. So MHRA is getting more money, but it's conditional on it speeding up its processes. And it's the speed, mm -hmm. this emphasis on speed that mm -hmm. is potentially a problem as it can lead to all sorts of unintended consequences for patients. And Tell the us NHS. a bit about those. So we know, for example, from the US, which historically has had a lot of um, experience with uh, speedy uh, drug review processes. Um, when regulators work under pressure and they work under strict, arbitrary, rigid deadlines, those approvals that happen immediately before the deadline tend to have more safety concerns that emerge during the post-marketing period. So that's something that the MHRA will need to really pay attention to and monitor. Um, in terms of efficacy, there are some unintended consequences as well, because when we look at a drug uh, early on, then we may get a wrong sense of how good this drug actually works if we were to wait longer and get more mature data about the drug. And one recent example of this is the MHRA's approval of um, molnupiravir mm -hmm. for high-risk COVID-19 yeah. patients. Um, the MHRA was the first regulator in the world to approve this medicine, and it was based on interim data from a clinical trial. And that interim data made the drug look really impressive in terms of reducing the risk of hospitalizations and other severe outcomes. But when more mature data appeared uh, from the same clinical trial, the drug no longer looked as effective as it initially appeared on the basis of the interim data. So by looking at drugs possibly prematurely, we may be actually making suboptimal decisions um, in terms of appraising the efficacy of products. What if there's disagreement between the international regulators? So FDA maybe said yes and EMA said no or vice versa. I think it's yet to figure out. But um, again, the it sounds like, again, this is trying to read between the lines because there's no clear uh, kind of policy documents uh, yet, um, that we would go for the speediest. So whichever one is the first approval, we would adopt that one because mm. in Jeremy Hunt's words, I mean, this is what he said, and I quote, this will put in place the quickest, simplest regulatory approval in the world. So FDA approves it first, MHRA is going to adopt that decision is what it sounds like at the moment, but it's unclear how it's going to be implemented in practice. And what if the external regulator gets it wrong? Well, that's precisely the concern. Um, when, we, uh, when, when the MHRA looks to other regulators for their decisions and almost automatically signs off on them, then we may be subjecting the NHS to really questionable decisions from other regulators. And one recent example of this is aducanumab, which was approved by the US FDA in 2021 for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. And this was a very controversial decision because the FDA gave the green light to this product on the basis of a surrogate endpoint, which according to established literature, is not really predictable, predicting uh, delays in cognitive impairment. And other regulatory agencies actually refused approval for this particular medicine, those in Canada, Japan, and the European Union. So it's unclear at the moment what safeguards the UK has in mind to implement to prevent these types of questionable approvals from getting an automatic sign-off um, in the UK. 
So if you were in charge of the MRHA and you were thinking, how can I take this forward in a way where we might get maximise some of those benefits that you mentioned, but minimise the potential for harm, what, what do they need to be thinking about or doing? I think it would be really important to put as much emphasis on the post-marketing obligations or responsibilities of the regulator, not only pre-market responsibilities. There has been a lot of emphasis, as I mentioned, on speeding up the approval of products, but this actually can really backfire Mm. and it can have unintended consequences because when you get products onto the market quite early on in their life cycle on the basis of quite limited or uncertain evidence, then you need to really boost the resources available for post-marketing responsibilities to make sure that those drugs that appeared efficacious initially, they continue to really deliver benefits for patients and the NHS, or that they don't have post-marketing safety concerns. And if they do emerge, then these can be quickly spotted and then products can be withdrawn if necessary. And without those kind of a, that, that type of a more holistic approach to drug regulation and putting all of the emphasis on this early market access aspect of it, I think um, this, is the, this is the aspect of the proposal or the, or, or the move that is potentially problematic. So they need to keep an eye on what happens afterwards and they need to be prepared then to change their mind or exactly. ad- adapt their position exactly. as new evidence emerges. Right. So what do you two think of what Hussein had to say? I thought it was fascinating. It's a, obviously an interesting and probably deliberately provocative new policy you know, from the MHRA, this kind of concept of the swift approval. There's been a whole host of research um, that's looked at you know, the issues around faster approval and risk you know, that Hussein uh, alludes to, you know, demonstrating that you know, when p- products are approved right near the deadlines, there, there does seem to be a greater risk that they had a safety issues identified later on. Um, Do you have a little interest to declare there, Joe? Oh, well, you know, that that did come from a paper that my group (laughs) published. uh, And it built on a sort of a seminal paper that Dan Carpenter published, you know, two decades ago. Um, And it's actually, you know, it's interesting. You know, we just published a paper in BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine that looked at this issue where um, kind of gets at why this may happen. Because what we identified is when there were disagreements among the medical officers, the reviewers at the FDA, those applications take longer to decide upon, but they are less likely to then have a safety issue identified later on. And it could be because they're sort of pressure checking and looking at information. I mean, I'm speculating about why that might be, as opposed to the sort of rubber stamp, everyone gets it out because it's got to make that deadline. Obviously, these regulators will all benefit from cooperation. And there's a tremendous amount of cooperation between the, the major kind of high income regulators like the US, Canada, EMA, MHRA, Japan, and Australia already. Um, But this idea of kind of reciprocal approval, kind of farming it out and allowing another regulator to make the decision for your kind of, you know, nation state is, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think the biggest question will be, how does, what position does this put NICE in? Because there's a step of approval, regulatory approval, demonstrating safety and effectiveness. And then there's a step of, you know, are we going to pay for it at the cost, right? In the U.S., Right, we don't really have that second step. So, you know, generally approval means it's on the market. And uh, you know, Hussein was sort of getting at some of the challenges and like what happened with aducanumab. Um, but it's it's provocative. I don't know, Juan. What do you think? Um, 
Yeah, that was a shameless plug, wasn't it? But since you mentioned BMJ BM, we'll forgive you for that. Uh, um, no, it's a great paper, actually. Um, it's a great paper. Uh, but um, it was fascinating to listen to Hussein's um, analysis of the situation. I guess for me, it wasn't that shocking because many countries uh, in Latin America use um, this process to... Um, sort of triangulate the approval in other stringent uh, uh, regulatory agencies to fast track products uh, for many reasons. The the market uh, um, being not so attractive for companies to place their products is one that Hussein already mentioned, and the situation in the UK um, seems to be signaling that way. Another um, perspective has to do with the reduction in cost that relates to the approval, and most of these costs are usually bared by the by the um, uh, public administration. So um, perhaps I'm, I'm not so skeptical in that regard. And perhaps I would also like to add another dimension that perhaps time, t when we talk about bureaucracy and pr processes, uh, time, I'm less concerned about time, but uh, uh, considering that one of the, the main concerns that we have been having in the last few years is the changing criteria for approval. So one of the concerns was that the FDA has been relaxing the criteria to approve drugs. So um, whether we could do that more efficiently or not in time, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's great. But I think that we need to to also keep an, a close look as to how, what is the where are the criteria that all of the agencies are using and whether the, there's a systemic relaxation of criteria across agencies that would also that is impact quite interesting, the UK. Juan. That that over time it's it's like there's a there's a difference in terms of what it means to be a drug which has been allowed access to the market. How much certainty or uncertainty do we still have about the benefit and harm of the drug and maybe the ability of regulators Hussein was talking about there to go to p place greater emphasis on the post-marketing not just studies but just sort of information and willingness to fine-tune the approval or even sometimes to change what they said um, in light of new information you don't you don't have that sort of necessary sense of circularity about them coming back to review something um it feels a bit linear doesn't it you get you get through that stage it's a tick and you're off to the next stage yeah this has been a growing challenge and the fda side with the greater use of the expedited regulatory pathways right the accelerated approval program the breakthrough de designation program all of which essentially use slightly different evidentiary standards to allow drugs to come to market more quickly, um, but then put more incentives or requirements on the post-market side to verify or confirm clinical benefit. And, you know, whether or not it's working, you know, some of us think that, you know, the standards aren't strong enough on the post-marketing side, recognizing that particularly in the U.S., there's always going to be this sort of motivation to bring products to market more quickly. But it, it's challenging to think about how to do this. And now what are the implications going to be on the UK side uh, if they're going to abide by a sort of a reciprocal approval made by the FDA? Um, and, and so now if the US is saying, OK, we'll approve it, but you're going to have to do this post-marketing requirement study, you know, where does that leave NICE? If they're sort of the approval is based on surrogate markers, right? So we don't really understand if there's actually a clinical benefit yet associated with the treatment or we're not, it hasn't been verified. You know, if, if it's allowing, quote unquote, 
speedier or swifter approval, but Nice still isn't going to pay for it. Is the policy effective? Is it you know is it worthwhile? Was it a good use of funds? Well, we will have to watch this space. I think. So from drug regulation, which feels rather abstract to to many jobbing uh, doctors, to something which feels perhaps more in your control. And Juan, another shameless plug from you for EBM Journal content here, a uh, systematic review looking at how good point of care uh, reference tools or textbooks um, are. Tell us about it. Uh, well, this was uh, this article was published at, at BMJ EVM Journal, and it was it's very interesting because uh, when we talk about point of care apps, of course, when I was trained in medical school, we didn't have those, uh, and, and I'm not that old. But um, uh, and then in residency, we did uh, started using all of this uh, and during our um, in our patients' encounters. We had that we co- we couldn't remember some criteria for some disease you turn to your phone and you look at one of these apps and um and they they've grown exponentially um so what this group of authors did is uh, provided a thorough assessment of how these uh, apps that provide um information for for c- clinical content that is useful at point of care for clinicians uh, what is the rigor of their development? How evidence-based they are, and um, and they looked at apps for Androids, uh, Android and iPhone, and um, and they included eight apps um, up to date: Dynamed, BMJ Best Practice, Therapeutic Guidelines, Medscape, Five Minute Clinical Consult, Pathway Medical Knowledge, and Ambos Medical Knowledge. Um, uh, the, 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 um, the assessment is quite thorough and they looked at different aspects. One had to do with the editorial quality and how evidence-based they are. And, um, and one of the, the top rated apps were um, UpToDate, Dynamed, and BMJ Best Practice in terms of editorial quality and evidence-based methodology. Go BMJ! Uh, <laughs> we did, this is an independent evaluation. So I, I, <laughs> <laughs> and um, but it's very interesting the differences. For example, up today had a, a greater coverage. So, for example, uh, that is very interesting for the internists who are always looking for the rare disease. Well, <laughs> well, uh, at the bedside of patient. Uh, but um, but for example, Dynamed um, included a more um, a structured way of grading the certainty of evidence which is uh, sort of relates to this concept of grade and so on. Um, so each of them have, have uh, pros and cons. And, and, and I think that it'd be useful to think about how this market ex- is growing and whether we, what's the regulatory framework for this in terms of this, this, these apps are influencing the, the decisions that doctors are making. So we need to make sure that they're evidence-based. Joe, you were you were whooping in a very in a very U.S. style there in the middle. Did did, did you want to uh, pitch in first? Well, I'm I'm proud that uh, you know our, the BMJ best practice comes off uh, in this objective measurement as not being terrible. It's actually considered pretty good and reliable and of good quality. I mean, I'll just say, 
you know, a couple of times a year, I'm on the wards with, uh, you know, house staff, and you know, then I'm also in clinics, you know, working as a preceptor, and it's amazing. You know, these point of care uh, resources, either you know, access through a computer or through your smartphone, they are they've completely changed the way medicine works, right? It used to be. I mean, even I'm even older than Juan, right? You know, I think up to date was just being developed when I was a resident, and you'd have to. There was one computer on the like the floor you know of the whole hospital ward that had it right because you had to have an individual subscription and so people would kind of line up to like look up things but really we were all still using big textbooks right you know we had that we would lug around or that would be in the sort of the, the team room that you would sort of look through and now uh, you know you don't have to memorize as much right because you can just kind of remind yourself of all these things you've learned by looking it up you know either on the internet or you know through the app and you know that's that's probably really good so long as they're reliable, accurate, and objective and evidence-based. And so it's actually quite important to have these kinds of assessments. It is quite an interesting issue to consider, isn't it? Because do you imagine that if you rewound back to the era of the textbook, we would have evaluated how evidence-based textbooks were? Well, let's just say evidence is very different now. I mean, right, you know, there's so much more evidence. There's better trials, there's many more trials, some of which are not better. Um, there's just more observational studies, there's more surveys, there's more of everything, which, you know, enable, it's created a far bigger, you know, basis of evidence to guide decision making, right? I mean, back in the era of the, you know, the 80s, even into the 90s, right, you know, there weren't there. There just wasn't as much research. It moved more slowly. So as things as things have sped up, uh, we need resources like this to help synthesize mm. and aggregate. In in my opinion. Yes. No. I totally agree. I, t I totally agree. You you have to have that. But it's interesting to think, going forwards, if if you're if we collectively are are EBM nerds, we care about this thing, and, and we care that what people are doing is evidence based. It's interesting to think how you can more clearly communicate that information so that you're sharing what amounts to sort of received wisdom or things that we sort of do as opposed to things which through some clear evidence framework we understand are maybe worthwhile or clearly you need to do this thing based on best evidence and I still don't think we've quite got that right I don't think we've quite got the conversation about where what you're reading what information that's based on um as clear as it as it could or should be. Oh, I, I see exactly what you mean now, and I totally agree, right? Because when UpToDate puts out a sort of a recommendation or a guidance, right, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that it applies equally to any individual patient. That the evidence that it was based on, you know, is relevant to older adults versus younger adults, right? And, it's, and so uh, people with certain comorbid diseases, and and sometimes that does get lost, right? Because you're not going to the source study, you're just reading, you know, the synthesis of it. Um, so it, it's not to say that it, that's not important. It's just kind of, I think it provides a starting point, particularly for those clinicians who want to follow out the trail of evidence through links embedded right within that point of source, point of care source material. It's much easier than, of course, you know, sitting down and doing a big PubMed search and then trying to manage that. I think we all know that's not going to happen <laughs> in the middle of a clinical day. <laughs> 
Right, that's about all we have time for uh, this week. You can subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts from. And we'll be back next month with more from the world of evidence. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care out there. <laughs>